Welcome to Meeting with Masters. Thoughts on music with people who don't suck. Meeting with Masters has been brought to you by Bonehead Music. www.bonehead.us Yes, just like it sounds. www.bonehead.us Here's our host, Dr. John Brummel. Hey there. Welcome back to Episode 3 of Meeting with Masters. Today's episode features Mr. Glenn Cronkite. Glenn is an incredible craftsman. He's the gentleman who invented Reunion Blues gig bags, or as you can find them today, Cronkite Custom Cases. He's a very interesting gentleman with an incredible background. He was a professional drummer, grew up in the Midwest, and I don't want to steal his story, but just to suffice to say... If you're looking for a bag that's actually going to protect your instrument, which is, for many of us, our livelihood, you want to look no further. Glenn makes bags with safety in mind. So if you want to find out more about Glenn, go to www.glencronkite.com. I'm going to spell it since it's a weird one. G-L-E-N-N-C-R-O-N-K-H-I-T-E.com. So without further ado, we're going to leap right in today with Mr. Glenn Cronkite, drummer, craftsman, and man of mystery. It was late this last summer when I drove over to Berkeley, California and picked Glenn up at his humble abode. It's a beautiful place under some trees and has an unbelievable setup with wood paneling, decks, and all this which Glenn has actually built himself. So Glenn got into my unbelievable 1995 Honda Accord. We headed down San Pablo Avenue so he could introduce me to the finer aspects of Japanese food. But then all of a sudden... Nah, just kidding. We made it to the restaurant. But I don't, I don't eat big during the day because mm-hmm. it, it slows me down. Yeah. And at my age, I can't afford to get any slower than <laughs> Well, you're only half of your expected life capacity. You can't check out early. We need you around, buddy. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think very many people live to be 140 years old. Meh. You could be the, you could be the second. <laughs> you know somebody who is? Uh, not personally, but... 140? This is very interesting. The tea, uh, Japanese-style tea, is I'm used to the Chinese uh, green tea normally. It has an interesting flavor to it. Yeah, the Japanese are there. It's the original green tea. Hmm. It's caffeine. Excellent. Tea and um, tons of antioxidants. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, the Japanese people are, are uh, chronic smokers, and they have very little, very little cancer. cancer. No kidding. Huh. Of smoker-related cancer. I would imagine the... Uh, they have terrible uh, hypertension because they eat so much soy sauce. Oh. Which is salt, too. You know? Interesting. Yeah. But uh, very little... And they, they kind of attribute it to this, mm-hmm. kind of like the, the Italians attribute it to the red wine. Yeah. Do you drink uh, coffee or mostly green tea? I've actually never had a cup of coffee in my life. Never had a cup of coffee in your life? Oh. I don't, had a I don't know if we can continue this friendship, sir. <laughs> I grew up in an Irish family. 
Wow, somewhere five or six generations before me, there had been a kraut in the woodpile, and that's where the name came from. No kidding. But everybody else were like O'Leary's, Gowdy's, Valentine's, you know. Wow. All Irish people. And we have first generation over here, or? Circus people. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Once on my, on my father's side, there was the Aerials. Mm -hmm. They were called the Flying Valentines. The Flying Valentines. They were the only American Aerialists group. Wow. And how did they end up? Uh, how did you guys end up on this side of the pond? Oh, I'm not finishing anything. They've, they've been here for a long time. Okay. Yeah. Mostly. So, anyway, so I started this little leather shop, and it went from 1967, closed two years ago. Holy cats. Just two years ago? Two years ago. The guy that ran it that ended up owning it died of cancer. Wow. He died of cancer. I think it was probably the longest running leather shop in history. I would imagine. It, well, certainly continentally, that's a... That's a pretty good history. Yeah. How did you make the? So you were in Cincinnati. You were you were playing, and who did you go out on the road with? In Cincinnati? No, I grew up in Illinois. In Illinois. Wow. And you started your musical career fairly early, right? Okay. Ready. At this point, Glenn gave me a quick education as to the finer aspects of Japanese food, and after a quick order of donburi, we were on our way. No, I grew up in the country in Illinois. In the country in Illinois? What town? Uh, the closest town was Bloomington. Nice. And there were uh, two universities, Bloomington Normal, uh, Illinois Wesleyan, there was Applied Arts College, mm -hmm. and uh, Illinois State Normal is uh, Teacher's College. Wow. And did you uh, begin a degree there at the school before you left to go play on the road, or? I, uh, there was a, it's funny, I was some kind of a, I don't know, very precocious kid. Uh, I find that hard to with, find a picture. With art. <laughs> oh, with art. Yeah. Interesting. Um, drawing and painting and that kind of stuff. So my mother, who was a very creative kind of person, she had this idea that maybe I had some art talent. So from the time I was five years old, I was going to uh, Illinois Wesleyan had a kind of... Uh, an extension or whatever you want to call it, where they would teach kids and people that weren't part of the university part. Interesting. So I, in the summers and stuff like that, I would go over there and study painting and that kind of stuff. Wow. And that's what I thought I was going to do. No kidding. My life. Yeah. And, uh, what was your favorite medium? Painting was comfortable. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I, you know, my house is all the paintings in my house, they're all done. Oh, wow. My mother saved them. And then, so that was going to be the course of my life. And when I was 
Thank you very much. Right. You know, between the eighth and ninth grade, which back there, you know, I went to a little country school. Mm-hmm. When I was a freshman in high school, there were seven people in my class. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, but between in the summertime, between the eighth grade and ninth grade, which was like between grade school and high school, where mm-hmm. I went, you know, um, several of my friends talked me into playing the snare drum in the, <laughs> in the school band. Oh, no kidding. It's such a small school that, you know, if somebody left the band, they were basically a defunct down an instrument. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I had studied piano mm-hmm. when I was a kid because my mother was a pianist. Oh. She, I mean, she wasn't a professional, but she played in the church. And that. Nice. <laughs> but uh, I had never thought about being a musician. I always loved music, and I listened to music. I grew up in the country. We didn't have a TV or something. And after dinner, my mother would play the piano, and that was our entertainment. Oh, neat. Between that and the radio. Wow. Yeah. So when these, these friends of mine... Approached me and I said, Well, why? Why, why do I want to do that? He says, Well, the band leader has a sailboat. <laughs> so I basically started playing because I wanted to go sailing. There you go. Yeah. And um, it kind of like uh, was the foundation of my belief in reincarnation. Because everything that band leader would show me was just like, it was like he was. Instead of teaching me, he was kind of reminding me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so somehow I feel like at some point I must have done that before. He would sh- I would get a book and he would show me the first couple of pages and I would come back and play the whole book. Wow. Yeah. So within a few weeks I had learned everything he knew, but luckily for me, there was a great teacher, his name was John Noonan, who was very well known in the drum world. Mm-hmm. He had worked Ludwig when it was the major drum company. Sure. He'd been part of the Roy Knapp School in Chicago, which was a very famous teaching place. But he wow. retired, and his wife had been born in Bloomington, Illinois. So no they kidding. retired to this little town near where I lived. Wow. And um, he played in the little orchestra they had there, and out of boredom, he started a little drum store. Oh, neat. <laughs> and anybody who played the drums used to hang out with John. Neat. So what he would do, uh, my band teacher said, well, I can't really teach you anything. Mm-hmm. You can imagine what a high-level teacher he was playing in a school that only had maybe 15 people. <laughs> in the but he was a really nice guy, and he said, he says, I know this guy, you know, he's, he's a very famous teacher, and he's in Bloomington, so you can go there and take some lessons. So nice. I did, and I had, he became kind of my foster father. I bet. And all through the high school, anytime I could get back home, I went to visit him. So that's how I started. And he, because he had been very well known in the musical community, he uh, he knew all the musicians. Mm-hmm. You know, so and in that day, colleges 
university, whenever they had a festival or a, a dance or mm -hmm. anything like that, they brought, they hired in, a live they brought band. in a big band. Oh, yeah. You know, so, you know, I saw Kenton's band, I saw Maynard Ferguson's band, I saw oh, wow. band. All in their heyday. <laughs> and also, you know, all these great, I saw Dizzy Gillespie, I saw Chicago Hamilton, all these people. Holy cats. Came through and played at the, you know. And they're the just doing the dances and the stuff well, like that? They did the dances and they did concerts and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, because they were on tour. And, uh, because uh, Mr. Noonan knew mm -hmm. all these people, you know, he would introduce me, and sometimes I would get to sit in, and you know, oh, oh wow, it was kind of like almost like a mascot. I bet. Yeah. A real trial by fire too. Who were some of the people that you got to? Do you have any recollections of talking or playing with yeah, some of these guys? Yeah, Gillespie was one of them. I got to, I got to sit in one time with Ferguson's band. I, you know, I. And this was all through your drum teacher. And this was all through your drum teacher there at the yeah. time. There were actually several of us that were. I think almost the best musicians in town were drummers because of. <laughs> I bet they tend to flock to. Actually, uh, the first uh, uh, quartet that I played in when I was in high school or something. Like that. Three of the musicians were drummers. <laughs> One of them also played the bass. Wow. I played vibes also. There you go. And then the, the third drummer played the drums, and then we had a saxophone player. <laughs> so you started fairly early, and you know, you're moving playing with these guys. What happened when you got out of high school? Well, I started playing with all the local musicians there and, and traveling. And, there were great musicians over at the University of Illinois. Sure. Because it was the kind of a center. It's a real they had, they had an amazing big band mm -hmm. led by a man named John Garvey, who was also the violist in the Bowling String Quartet. Oh, wow. That directed the uh, chamber orchestra. A violist running the big band? That's, that's okay, somewhat of an anomaly. Yeah, an amazing. Uh, Attachment with jazz. That's great. And there were incredible players there. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were very influential players now. James Knapp ran for years the Cornish Institute in, uh, in um, Seattle. Wow. He's one of the people that run to war. It's like, he's a, he's a legendary saxophone player. Yeah. Chicago. Oh, no, no, no. no. George Marsh, who teaches, who's the drum instructor at Sonoma State. Okay. That mob. <laughs> Sounds like a uh, real hub of uh, activity there in Illinois. Another guy named John English, who ran a oh. big group here for years and years. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. No kid. Aside from the uh, big band, the University of Illinois was also uh, a center for contemporary 20th century composers. No kidding. Well, who was there? Well, I, while I was there, I got to work with John Cage. Wow. I worked with a, a crazy, wonderful man named Harry Parch mm -hmm. for about a year and a half. 
with its microtonal systems. And they brought all these people in. Wow. All these people. Holy cats. And in the summer, they would do festivals where. Because they have such a uh, crew of great players there. Contemporary, they would have a contemporary music festival. That's outstanding. And all these composers would bring their work there to be performed. Mm -hmm. So in, the people that played there, we played in the big band. And, Were you involved in the classical program? played in the, in the big band. Mm -hmm. Because I was very rarely enrolled in the school, but uh, I played a lot with the people that were there, doing that, doing that work. <laughs> so that was a, an amazingly fun time. I would imagine. And you mentioned uh, you were rarely enrolled. Was that because you were on the road with those bands you had mentioned, or? You know, I was one of those people that by the time I was through high school, I was kind of done <laughs> with history, social science, and uh, biology. You know, uh -huh. I just wanted to work on my play. Mm -hmm. So I ended up moving around a lot. I lived in Toledo, Ohio for a while. I lived in Miami, Florida for a while. Hmm. I would imagine uh, Miami was fairly big for working and jobbing around. I went down there. It was early 60s. Because my father, my mother and father had been divorced. Mm -hmm. my, my father had moved down there. And we were pretty much starving in Chicago. So. The middle of winter, it was 25 below zero. <laughs> well, we go to Miami, we may starve, but at least we won't freeze. At least you'll be warm. <laughs> and I had a, I had a son. So, you had a son at that time? Yeah. I got to know. Married in 19 and had a son almost immediately. Holy cow. So was this with the Japanese woman you had mentioned mm -hmm. earlier or no, that different? There was a second marriage. Ah. So how did you make the transition from traveling around, playing, and then all of a sudden decide to open up the uh, leather shop? When I went back to the University of Illinois, I kept going back in and out of there. Mm-hmm. Not to the school, but to the town. I think it was my Spaniards. I saw... Going through some family up people and that kind of stuff. And I decided we needed to a break from music. Mm-hmm. And I met a woman that was making sandals. Hmm. Living in San Francisco for a while. Knew about leather shops. Mm-hmm. 
He helped her make a pair of sandals, and I made a pair for Marty, so. Which is good, I like that. And was that out here, or in, uh, still in uh, Illinois, at the time when you met this? It's nice. Champagne, Illinois. Okay. You know, they put around the wall, you know, where trees. And, uh, was walking down the street, somebody saw him, wanted a pair. So on and so forth, like that. Hmm. It's the same experience. When I <coughs> decided later to make a simple bag and stick that for myself. Hmm. Because those things didn't exist at that point. Were there any sort of uh, gig bags or anything like that at the time? Well, there was. There was something that we used to call bebop bags. Hmm. They were these black naga hide or some kind of vinyl or something. Hmm. They had a, if you were lucky, they had a handle. Uh-huh. No straps, no padding. Really? It was just basically a... It's just like a sack almost. It's like a sack, kind of shaped like a saxophone. You know? <laughs> or whatever. People are always getting their horns screwed up and everything. Mm -hmm. But drummers carried their cymbals yeah, in the trap house. Oh, really? Or they put them in their in their bass drum inside the hoops. There you go. Yeah. Tore up the bass drum. I bet. Made the trap case so heavy you couldn't pick it up. Sure. Probably ripped up the heads as well. Now went up to Alameda Church. That was after I came to California. I ended up making a simple bag, a stick bag for myself, just out of self-defense. Nice. Because I was working two or three days a day. So in other words, kind of scratching your own itch. You had a need and couldn't find anything you wanted, and you said, forget it, I'm going to build it. And it was just like the, the sandwich, you know. It's like, luckily, I was working with a lot of musicians that other musicians wanted to see. Mm -hmm. And I would go and play some... $50 gig somewhere. Mm-hmm. And say, wow. And all the local musicians would see me packing up. So I'd go home with $50 and five cases to make. <laughs> wow. And it all started with a cymbal bag and a stick bag. Yeah, that was the beginning. How many iterations um, did you go through? Did you design it on paper first or just start building? Or what was the process behind it? Making a cymbal bag? Yeah, well, good Chevrolet. When you made your first one? Yeah, it's not exactly a complicated thing. It's two circles sewn together at the bottom. That's true. The handle and the strap. Well, that's true, but and then I'm again... Sure, I'm sure that, you know, somebody had gotten their mother or their girlfriend or their wife or something to make something like that before, but, you know, it, you know just just like uh, I, when I made my stick bag, I just made this thing that I, I wanted to uh, be able to put my sticks in it. True. But I wanted to be able to hang it on my... Tom -tom, so yeah, because drummers put their sticks on top of the bass drum, and every time you hit it, a good one. Thump. <laughs> uh huh. Have your designs evolved much since then, or just basically change configuration depending on what it is you're building? Yeah, I use different techniques because what happened is that after a while. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, guitar players started seeing the cymbal bags mm -hmm. because the drummers just brought them when they came to work. And they started begging, bugging me to make something for them. And yada, yada, yada. And they kind of evolved out of that. I mean, a cymbal bag is a very simple thing. Sure, but if I look at one of your cymbal bags compared to if I go onto Amazon or eBay and just type in gig bag or cymbal, ba cymbal bag, I mean it's very it's very clear how quick the drop off and the change in quality and protection of the instrument is. Yeah. So what? But what I'm saying is that you know as I started making cases for more complicated instruments, mm -hmm. like for instance a saxophone. Mm -hmm. You could make a saxophone case by going it, by sewing a couple of yeah. sides together. You know, it had to be three-dimensional. It also had to have padding in it, because, mm -hmm. as opposed to a cymbal, which is a piece of solid brass mm -hmm. and reasonably indestructible. The saxophone was covered with keys, springs, yep. and and uh, you know rods. There's so many little things that can go out of whack. My mother had been uh, a tailor, but she'd also done a lot of upholstery. So hmm. I just started experimenting around with uh, with different ways to make a padding, and then I had to have lining, and you know, it just basically, I, you know, I didn't. I was operating in a vacuum because no one else did it that mm -hmm. I knew about. Sure. So I didn't have anything to copy. So it was kind of like doing upholstery, except that you were inventing it as you go in a way. I was trying to figure out how to do upholstering and get the thing I was upholstering in and out of it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there was there a, unique was a period of an involvement, is what I'm trying to say. Sure. How long did it take you to really hit your stride? I, you know, I haven't been there during the same time. I don't know, within a year. Well, I did it just by myself for a couple of years. And, you know, I would go play a gig and I would go home and I would make bags. And <laughs> Put on the radio. The drummers radio and start sewing. The drummers in town used to. I've been to the oh laugh. The, I knew all their wives and girlfriends. Because I would always get calls from so and so's wife or girlfriend. Yeah, okay. And Tony or whoever it was. She really wants a symbol bag and it's good to treat Christmas or his birthday's coming up. But it's got to be a surprise. So it sort of became a joke in the community. You know, it's like, oh, there's Glenn, he's meeting so and so's wife. Or, on Bush Street, <laughs> eight o'clock. It's almost like a drug deal with a symbol bag. Almost, yeah. After making bags for so many years, you was there a point, you know, once you'd been making them for so many years, where all of a sudden it's just like you felt like anything that came your way, no big deal, you could crank it out, and you really just started to do it almost automatically, and it just, you know. 
almost effortlessly. I mean, well, the, the thing of it is, is that there's, there's about one ounce of, of German in me. And I guess that accounts for the fact that I kind of paid attention as I went along. And once I figured out how to do something, I kind of developed a system for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but then you've got you know, at each different point, if you, if you get a tracing or some measurements for a tuba, yeah, for instance, yeah, well, just for instance, I started out by, and there were times, I'm on the second generation construction wise of how to make tuba cases. But when I did it, what I did is I got a tuba. I just wanted to get the food. And you know, it's, it's an odd kind of. It's a unique beast. Well, it's an odd kind of thing because when you're trying to figure out how to cut pieces of material, foam, etc., etc., sure. that will hold something inside of it, you have to figure out how much bigger in each direction, each different piece, mm -hmm. and they're all different. The lining's different from the foam, is different from the outside. Sure. So that when these things are sewn together, wrong side out, turned right side out, the thing that you're trying to make fit in there is actually going to go in <laughs> and not move around. Yeah. So I, I just hung out with a tube for a while, and I kept making you know, prototypes mm -hmm. until I figured out exactly how much to add in each direction. Mm -hmm. The engineering part, how to reinforce it so that, you know, when you picked it up by the handles, it would balance and it wouldn't fall apart. Sure. And then I went from that, I took, took another tuba, and I just did measurements. And I applied the system that I had developed to that. And just expand and or contract depending. To, you know, I had to fine tune it, and, and eventually, over a period of months, I figured out how if somebody sent me measurements, I could make a case to fit any tuba. Because mm -hmm. you knew proportionally where it would adjust, and I knew how to make patterns and cut material. Sure. Patterns to where when they're finally <coughs> lose, you know, so much of their size and so on, things from stitching and going around corners and all this kind of stuff. Sure. That it actually will fit the instrument. I bet. And it's way different and more complicated than making clothes, for instance, because with clothes you're not dealing with padding. Yeah. I mean, when you're going to go around a corner with a piece of cloth, that's one thing. If you're going because it's you know a millimeter thick. Sure. If you're going to go around a corner with another you know, quarter inch of foam. foam leather foam and lining and stuff like that you're talking about an inch thick mm -hmm. it takes more room to go around something yeah so it's a more complicated process it's funny if you buy the steak you go to the table and just pay it's also very different depending on the instrument in other words there's a totally different system for sizing a pattern for a guitar or a saxophone a harp, the old gamma, they all have their own system. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
I guess now most places are coupon, right? Yeah. I think, yeah. As far as I know, I mean. What's the most eclectic instrument you've ever made a bag for? Oh, God. <laughs> I saw on your wall tacked up there a soprano trombone. That's not bad. Didn't think those were legal here in the in the community, but what's the craziest, most outlandish thing you've ever uh, rigged up? I don't know. I mean, a lot of... I have at this point patterns for almost 5,000 instruments. Holy cow. A lot of them are instruments that I never... I didn't know existed. Before. And... There are still some some instruments which are actually fairly common, which I have a lot of trouble with. Hmm. Like what? Just because, primarily because I didn't get a good system. Hmm. There must be some overlap, right? Kind of the worst of that mob is baritone and alto horns. Oh yeah. Well, also, there's such incredible variation in the instruments. Yeah, every time I see one, it's a completely different set of patterns. And, you know, it's, it's disappointing. I just don't have as much time. Mm -hmm. You know, my time to develop all that stuff. It was when I licensed Reagan Blues to manufacture my What's If you don't mind me uh, crying, because I know it can be somewhat of a sensitive subject, I've, you know, I've had to educate some of my colleagues that even the bags today made by Reunion Blues are not the same as, you know, the ones that were manufactured by you. What's what's the, st the history and the story there? Because I'm ignorant of a part of it, and I know a lot of people are. I started doing this that way. Right around 1970. Mm -hmm. And a couple years later, I realized that... Uh, well, you could drive right into, I mean, if I kept doing this, despite it, pay right. You know that there was there, there was a huge market for it. Yeah, and I started out. They have it so that you don't even have to almost stop. When I decided to check out this simple band and stick band thing, that has that kind of place. I had made them for like local guys for a while, and I just tried. You know something? I mean, I wonder what is here really. Sure. So I made 12 sets, and I sent them out to the major drum stores hmm. in the United States. Frank's Drum Shop in Chicago, Pro Percussion, you know, Frank Acolito's place in New York, mm -hmm. Manny's. Nice. Six of them came back saying, what the hell is this? We don't need it. <laughs> Who would buy a stick bag for $8? No kidding. Or one of their stick bags for $8. Wow. Mm -hmm. The other six... I got a call almost immediately. He says, "My God, where have you been?" Genius, give me a thousand. <laughs> well, quite literally, they would order fifty or a hundred stick bags. Wow. And twenty-five simple bags. And after a very short time, I realized that. I mean, there was not just a big market for this. In other words. A, a chance to make some money. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, but there was a yeah, real need for it. Like, it yeah. wasn't just something that I uniquely needed for myself. Absolutely. Well, there's very few things and that I will trust kept, my horn to. Everybody kept telling me, you know, it's like, you know, you have to do this. Because, you know, this is something we need. Yeah. And so, 
I decided to get into it. But I realized almost immediately that if I kept doing it myself, I was going to have to give up my own musical career, mm -hmm. which I was not interested in. I mean, I couldn't be on tour and, and making bags and have somebody call me up because their sewing machine is broken. Yeah. So I put together the factory, I trained the people, and I sold the business part of it to uh, the, the man that ran it for years and years, and he called it Reunion Blues. Mm -hmm. And I set up a licensing agreement, and uh, he would basically pay me in royalty, kind of like when you record a record. Sure. And we worked in that way for 25 years. In 2000, through financial problems, or whatever, they closed their factory, and for many years it was here in the city, right? It was in San Francisco all the whole time. Entire that I had been part of it. Mm -hmm. So owning the products, I pulled the products out of the factory, and I also pulled the best of the craftsmen. Wow. And I said, you know. Because at that point, I had developed a list of tendonitis and couldn't play anything. Sure. And I did it basically almost like partly as a community service so that people could still get an American-made project. Sure. And because I could continue to shepherd the quality mm -hmm. and the design and all that kind of stuff. And the other part, to be able to the people that I took with me so that they didn't end up going on the street after after working there for 20 years. Yeah, that's... Also, I have a real aversion to China's human rights policy. Mm -hmm. I have a very close relationship with Tibetan people. So I just didn't want any part of it. And that's how I ended up doing it as I do it now. And there's, do they continue to manufacture bags in China under the reunion bags with your design? Well, the deal was, and it was a very ugly, messy deal, mm -hmm. as a lot of those things were, first of all, they were not, even though I had had a licensing slash royalty contract with reunion blues in effect, forever. Mm -hmm. They were, and everything they had, the factories ever paid me was in the nature of royalties. They were maintaining that I didn't own my product. In other words, they had been paying me rent for something that they claimed they owned all along. Nice. So it was a mess of business, but I'm sorry, what was the question? Do they continue to uh, make oh, yeah. the bags with your uh, design? The, the final end agreement was that they they brought back all the patterns that they had copied and taken to China and so on and so forth, and agreed not to copy anything from my bag. Which you know, some people don't do that. They did anyway. Mm -hmm. 
but in that case, you can't help it. They're in China, they don't own copyright. They don't honor copyright laws. Some of the bags they changed considerably. Some of them only did was change the shape of the whole connectors, yeah. The holes the handle. Yeah. And called it their design. Called it new. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's such. You know, it's like, had I been in that situation, I mean, a tip. And you know, separated myself from somebody who basically had some ownership mm -hmm. of the stuff that I had made in the past. It would have been wow. I have a blank canvas here. Yeah. I've been doing this for 35 years. Mm -hmm. I can think of all kinds of things that should be different with this stuff. Sure. And the simple aesthetics of it are like, you know, it's just a piece of flexible sculpture. Yeah. Let's go to a town here. Yeah. You know, let's go let's crazy. Have, let's have some fun. Exactly. Also, the difference between me and almost anybody who makes bags, and I, for me, it's the bottom line. Is it any person that designs, engineers, all of it, and I know how to do all the stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can cut, I can sew, I can make patterns, I can do all of it from start to finish. Sure. So I can sit in my little kitchen of a workshop and conceive of a design and carry it through to the end. And I have the piece to look at and work with and modify and so on and so forth. Sure. The other half of it is that the person that is doing this is a musician mm -hmm. and has spent his entire life around people that play the saxophone, the trombone, the whatever. Yeah. I'm intimately involved with musicians and their instruments and I know how fragile they are and in what way and what needs to be protected and what I don't know, I just call up one of my friends and say, sure. hey, hey, what about this? Let's hang out, you know? Yeah. Or I go and hang out at the music store and, and talk to somebody like Dick Ackerman. Oh, yeah. Like a, or a noun, you know. Oh, yeah. Brass technician. He's, he's one of the last few much. real artists of the trade. He's like me. You know? Yeah. He's like a hands-on guy that was, has been part of this world for mm -hmm. You know, and he knows, he's forgotten more stuff than most people ever know. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what's really interesting. I mean, he's not the only one, but he's, he's one that's he's one of the best. Yeah. I know really well. Yeah. He's one of the best. I mean, he, Chuck McAlexander at the Brass Lab in New York, those type of guys, they're real artists and craftsmen of the old old tradition much like yourself with your bags and yeah. that's I guess probably for me as a as a player and as, as a teacher I mean like you said we spend so many hours a day on our instrument I won't trust my instrument to anything but one of your bags or like one of the hard cases it came in mm -hmm. and um, I guess do you have any other thoughts you know for like the people that are going to listen to this what's what are the things that really bring it bring it to town with your designs and with what it is that you do I mean we talked a little earlier about what makes it better what's yeah what's the I mean I know very very easily I could say a thousand words about it but for you what's why do you keep on doing this and just to summarize what's the well at this point I don't really want to keep doing this <laughs> well, I mean, the, the real 
the situation is here. I, I really don't have anything better to do. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, I'm <coughs> I'm proud of my work. And I like the people that I work with. Mm -hmm. We've been working together for a couple of decades. You know. I think it really stands out, though. But you know, I am forced in, at this point in my life to do something which I never ever wanted to do, which is spend 90% of my time being a businessman. Mm -hmm. I spend way more time answering questions via email, email on the phone, to, trying to find leather in in a world where. All the tanneries are gone, and all the leather industry is gone from this country, mm. which is makes it harder and harder and harder. Sure, you know everything about my the industry that I'm part of, which is leather work, shoes, purses, mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff that is also made out of the same material that I use, or different versions of it. It's all gone from this country now. Yeah. You know, coach, all those bags which used to be made in New York and wherever, they're all made, you know, anywhere else but here now. Sure. Where's the leather coming from? Well, you know, there used to be tanneries everywhere. You know, there were a half a dozen. I mean, two blocks, five blocks from my house was a tannery called Manassi Block. Ah. It's now a restaurant and a, and a you know, printing press. Wow. You know, Sal's Tannery was one of the biggest in the world. They made all the leather for Coach. Mm -hmm. They were the main industry in Santa Cruz. Wow. Gone. When I, I was actually in there buying the last load that came out of production in that, in that tannery. And there was, you know, there were pictures on the wall of them bringing the leather in with horses. Huh. And it went back 150 years. Wow. In that business. That family business. You know. So, I mean, the end of it is, you know, the part that I liked was the inventing of it and the creative part of it and so on and so forth, which, and the hands-on making of the cases. Mm -hmm. But the making of the cases is brewing up my hands. Sure. And the creative part of it, I have practically no time for. Mm -hmm. I'm just running a business. Ninety percent of my day, I get up all day long. I'm running a business and trying to troubleshoot problems, trying to track down materials, find out why my webbing hasn't arrived. <laughs> dealing with a batch of leather that came in that was wrong. Sure. And you know, when you buy leather, you're you're buying you know several hundred sides of leather at a time. Each one of them is you know a hundred dollars. Yeah. <coughs> it's a lot of pressure and it's a lot of problems, you know, and I I get very little time to do the part of it that I really like the most. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned that you redesigned the uh, the tuba bags, and I know I've, I've got one of your redesigned trombone bags with the slide that comes off, um, and you did that a few years back. If you could outsource something like the day-to-day <coughs> phone calls and emails to someone you trust what would you what would you be interested in designing what would be the next thing you'd be like to do I don't know you know I have cases designed for so many different instruments that 
I can't imagine that there are too many more out there. <laughs> I mean, there would be different versions of something that I already do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I make Sarot cases, <coughs> cases, I make cases for Chinese peepaw. Ah. You know, I make, you know, I must have 500 heart patterns. Wow. You know, it's, it's ridiculous, you know, the stuff that I have sitting around. I have so much, so many patterns around, it's hard for me to find any one particular one. Mm -hmm. Some I manage, I have a some kind of system for storing the patterns, which takes up the entire basement of a thousand square foot house. <laughs> Plus the ones that are in my contract. What I would do if I had my choice of anything I could do with my life is be able to play again. Mm -hmm. Without that, everything else is kind of secondary. So once, uh, if you're, you know, if tomorrow I would wake up and my hands would work, and and I didn't need to spend all my waking hours running my business, mm -hmm. I would basically set up my drums and start practicing woodshaking until I got to the point where I could go start playing because. You know, my playing was always twofold. Part of it was playing, mm -hmm. the other part of it was writing. Sure. And I wrote a large amount of the music for most of the people that I played with. Wow. Yeah. It's a, a kind of unusual at that time for drummers. Yeah. yeah. Have you thought about getting back into the writing aspect? You know, writing for jazz musicians is a thankless job. <laughs> you know, one of the very few ways that anybody makes any money off a record is writers. Yeah. And besides which, the, the people that really like the music that I write, they're all great writers themselves. Sure. And you have very few chances to record, so they're going to record their own music. Yeah. I would. <laughs> I mean, I always, in my bands, I always played other people's music as well, you know, especially the other people in the band. Sure. But, you know, I think if I was ever to be able to do anything with my own music, I would have to be able to play again and have my own band and be, pay more attention to recording it. Mm -hmm. I know people that always said, you know, like, no matter what you do, you've got to record. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, it's all going to go in the garbage can when you get old. Sure. It's going to be like it never existed. Because the people that remember what it sounded like are going to die, mm -hmm. and you're going to die, and you're going to leave no track record of, of an entire life. Thank you. Well, speaking of leaving a legacy, do you have any plans for your business with the cases then? Because that is also, I mean, like we talked earlier, that's really an art form. Um, do you have plans to pass that on or apprentice anyone so that way we don't lose all the great things that you've created? I think my son might take over. Excellent. And, uh, you know, the people that make, that work with me making the cases, they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, who knows? The problem is I'm so, so busy that you know, I can't really get past what I need to do today and tomorrow to think about <laughs> what I need to do next year. 
is, is the part that doesn't business that really makes me crazy. Sure. Is this, I wore too many hats and it's too there's just there's not enough for me to get everything done in Absolutely. So in that way it's constantly frustrating. <laughs> yeah, which has nothing to do with the the products at all. Absolutely. It has to do with the internal part of being able to survive in this country. Day by day. <coughs> doing it, an art form that should have died out a long time ago. I mean, basically, I'm a f- cobbler. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, well, make hand making one at a time, you know, these leather goods. Mm-hmm. Not something that people do anymore. Sure. But by that effect, I mean, there are very few people that can do what you do. So by that, at least. Well, it's, it's not. It's also not that it, I mean, you need to have a knack for it or a talent for it or a, a whatever, you know. You need to be good with your hands, but it's not that complicated. I mean, compared to playing music, it's child's play. I mean, I have a friend that uh, learned to have, he learned to solo in a helicopter. Wow. In a quarter of the time that it takes most people to learn how to be able to just, just be able to fly it with the instructor. <laughs> and the instructor asked him, he says, how did you learn this so fast? He says, compared to music, it's a snap. <laughs> if you think about it, you know, it's like, when you have more hours of learning how to play music, not just an operating instrument, but sure. how to play music and improvise and survive all the stuff yep. that you're dealing with in this moment to moment, give you no breaks. Absolutely. In a situation, you know, you're more more training than those surgeons. Yep. Certainly, uh, how to deal with the things that are thrown at you and yeah. maintain composure yeah. under fire. Yeah, and and you don't get ever a chance to say, "Oops, that wasn't <laughs> right. I'll oh. try that again." Let's erase that. <laughs> Thank you. You're fired. <laughs> no, no erasing on a on a in a concert. No. Once it's out there, it's out. Yeah. I really appreciate you. It's like being able to type with no, it's like typing with no whiteout. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks so much for sharing your stories. I really uh, appreciate the time. Well, if we talked again. I think there's no better way to sum up Glenn's philosophy of case building than a paragraph from him on his website. Again, that's glennkronkite.com, G-L-E-N-N-C-R-O-N-K-H-I-T-E.com. And this is an interesting website. There are exactly two pages, and you can find his contact information there. The last paragraph on the second page says, During my lifetime as a musician and a craftsman, I have been fortunate to know a lot of people who did something extremely well. Most of them shared something in common. They had a philosophy about what they did, an internal statement of intent, which they used to evaluate and direct their work. In the beginning of my work, when I was trying to decide if a gig bag was something the music world needed, I had my own statement of intent. It has not changed. Build a Ferrari, lightweight and streamlined. Build it tough, to take a beating. Build it to fit and protect what's inside, and make it look as elegant as possible. Otherwise, don't bother. So finally, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure serving you today, and thank you, Glenn, for your gracious time and Hope to see you around for another 70 years, sir.
Thanks so much for your support of this podcast and taking the time to listen today. Hope you've enjoyed it and look forward to seeing you very soon. If you haven't yet subscribed, go to iTunes and type in Meeting with Masters or John Brummel, or just go to bonehead.us and click on subscribe in iTunes. And if you've enjoyed it, take a moment and leave a review in iTunes. Thanks so much and have an outstanding day. Meeting with Masters has been brought to you by Bonehead Music. www.bonehead.us Yes, just like it sounds. www.bonehead.us And thank you.